But I want to thank everybody who nominated me for elder candidate and to say that, um, you know, I, I sense the great responsibility that it is, and I, I really feel that now especially. So thank you for that. Um, about two weeks ago, we heard from John Thompson, had a great sermon from, from John, and Hatcher, my, my almost 10-year-old son, turned to me, and he said, Dad, when do you get to go up there and, and do that? And I said, well, in, in about two weeks, son. He's like, that's going to be so cool. So not only do I have to fear not uh, you know, inadvertently spouting some sort of heretical statement or uh, passing out right up in front of you, but now I also have to be cool. So um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'll let you judge about the heresy, and Hatcher, you can tell me if I was actually cool or not. But um, This is the 12th sermon in the series on biblical interpretation entitled The Most Misused and Misunderstood Verses of the Bible. And I actually changed my title many times, so I think in the bulletin it says, I can do anything, but I settled on the one on your insert, which is actually, we are not comic book heroes, which I thought was a cooler sort of title. So um, let me just open up this app here. Okay. Um, Despite what you might believe, uh, believe it or not, I did not always want to be the mild-mannered music teacher you see before you today. In fact, if you had, uh, or if somebody had asked me at the ripe old age of four or five what I wanted to be, the terms music teacher would have had about as much relevant to my future view of myself as husband or father or, weirdest of all, elder candidate. Instead, had anybody asked me what I wanted to be, I would have said oceanographer. No, really, that is what I would have said. Indeed, that is what I told people that I wanted to be. You see, at five years of age, there are very few professions you could mention to the adults around you that would earn as much respect and attention from them as saying you wanted to be an oceanographer. Most people would stop, tell you what a smart and lofty sense of career choice you had made, and then move on to try to figure out what an oceanographer was and what one in that capacity would do all day. I must say it was a great time in my life. To the eyes of my peers and the world at large, I had it all together. I had both an extensive vocabulary for a five-year-old and a solid 20-year plan. (laughs) My playmates hadn't even really yet learned how to tie their shoes or button their pants. (laughs) To be honest, I hadn't really either, and sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes I still struggle with that. (laughs) It is sad to say, though, that the truth of my five-year-old life was actually much darker. The whole oceanographer thing, it was a front. It was a ruse of high magnitude designed with the sole purpose of disguising my real lifelong desire. Now, I've never revealed this secret to anyone before, not to my wife, not to my children, Maybe it's due to the fact that I knew I'd be in front of you today and that for, to some degree you'd be wanting me to reveal a little bit about myself to you. I see the expectant eyes of all of you wanting me to show you who I am, to reveal myself and to open up. And I just hope that after revealing this secret that I'm not disqualified from a place on the session of this church. As nice as the life of an oceanographer might have proven to be, I would have thrown that dream out like a dead fish in order to achieve my real goal, my real career choice. You see, I wanted to be Superman. (laughs) Blue tights and red cape, bring it on. X-ray vision and the ability to lift up a car, that was what I was talking about. I wanted it so bad, but how to achieve it? 
The wanting of a thing and the acquiring of a thing are two different things altogether. Now, obviously, I wasn't from the planet Krypton, at least not that my parents had told me. I had trouble opening up my milk carton at school without the kindergarten lady's assistance, so the super strength thing seemed uh, not to be happening. How to lay claim was surely my birthright, unleash my powers. And then the answer came to me, and it was so simple. Ask God to make me Superman. I'm sure, guys, you've all done that, right? I mean... Now, before I continue with my confession and end the suspense of whether or not God did indeed make me Superman, I need you to know that I did not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus until I was 20 years old. Surprising, right? Uh, My idea of God at age five was a mixture of images, a kind of a tableau of impressions roughly equating to Santa Claus, my grandpa, and Luke Skywalker. God was this cosmic giver of gifts with the power of the force, lightsaber sold separately. Also, in my mind, when you ask God for something, you had to bargain with him. It was always an if-then proposition. So my idea was to ask God to make me Superman. To do this, I employed a prayer formula I'd used on many occasions to try to get what I wanted, ranging from the help-me-to-find-a-misplaced-toy-I-had-to-find scenario to the clandestinely-acquire-a-cookie-from-the-cookie-jar scenario. My mom, by the way, did have superhuman powers. She could hear a cookie jar open from about a mile away. That's probably why I thought I was actually Superman. So this time the formula went, God, if you turn me into Superman, then I will love you forever. No joke, that was my bargain with God at five years of age. And as you could tell, I was a selfish little monster. I actually thought I was doing God a favor by promising him that I would love him forever. Like God was then going to say, oh, You'll love me forever. Well, in that case, sure. Instead of turning me into Superman, God probably should have turned me into Lex Luthor. He did not turn me into Lex Luthor, and convinced of my own powers of persuasion, I decided to put my newly voiced request to be Superman to the test. Now, trying to uh, to fly seemed unreasonable. Blowing trees down with my tornado-like breath, that was too easily explained by freak natural phenomena, like perhaps a freak tornado. Bursting through walls, though, now that had style. And at this point, maybe you can see the painful direction that my reasoning at five years of age was taking me. Confident that I persuaded God with my limited time offer of eternal fealty and love, I ran fast and furious headlong into my bedroom wall. Bam. Yeah, you sure you want me to be your elder candidate? Unfortunately, things did not turn out as you would have expected. Instead of a pile of smoking rubble where my bedroom wall once was, instead of shouts of amazement from my family that my powers had finally been revealed and a ticker tape parade with me flying at the front of it, I think what I actually accomplished was probably the first of many concussions that I would receive in my growing up years. I also received the sure knowledge that I was not a comic book hero. And you know what? None of us are. And God is not some cosmic candy machine dispenser of superhuman powers or the grantor of our every wish. And this brings us to our verse today, which is Philippians 4.13. Before we read it, however, I need to pray and maybe ask forgiveness. I think it's back on. It turned off for some reason. Let's bow our head in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you tell us in your word, be still and know I am God. 
how hard it is in this world, which clamors with ceaseless noise and never-ending distraction, to actually be still and to contemplate who you are. This world has fallen under sin and now seeks to tell us that you are not God and that instead of being still, we should seek to be all that we can be and to achieve all that we can achieve. How often we voice our ambitions, sugar-coated with your words, to make their utterance more pleasant to hear and to ease our conscience. I pray that this morning your word will speak to us anew. Please, Father, forgive how, despite my best intentions, I might this day make your word less than it should be. Bless the hearing of and aid me in the speaking of your word. Allow us, if nothing else, to simply be still and to know that you are God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our verse today is Philippians 4.13, and I am willing to bet that we don't actually even need to read it. I bet we all know that verse, right? Uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our first point today is the verse confused, and so I'm going to be spending a little bit of time sort of demonstrating how that verse has been confused. Philippians 4.13 is arguably one of the most popular verses in the English Bible, and with good reason. When we read verse 13, we read that through him, that is Christ, who strengthens us, we can do all things. Now, who in the right mind doesn't like that? We are being told by none other than the Apostle Paul himself that the limitations that constantly seem to beset us are really no limitations at all when we have the strength of Christ to empower us. Now, if only I had known about this verse when I was five years old, instead of my very self-serving prayer promising to grant God a portion of my love in exchange for giving me superpowers, I could have just claimed this verse and had those superpowers at my disposal. I really could have had a comic book life, and is it really that hard to believe? Was it not God who gave Moses the power to turn his staff into snakes? Did he not grant Moses the power to turn the Nile into blood? And I think when Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea, if Superman had been there, he probably would have stopped in his tracks in respectful silence. God granted Elijah the power to call down the fire of heaven to incinerate not just a pile of wet logs, but all the priests and pagan worships who were standing nearby. That is power worthy of any ink Marvel Comics could put to paper. It seems that these two mighty figures of the Old Testament knew that the wondrous things that could be accomplished when they were plugged into God's strength. There are other examples that could be mentioned as well. The, Ethio- uh, I'm sorry, the Apostle Philip, after baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, was able to teleport 20 miles away in the blink of an eye through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9 and 20, we read that the Apostles Peter and Paul, respectively, were both able to raise people from the dead by harnessing the power of God. These men obviously realized that they were plugged into the power of God and could utilize this power to do mighty works. Now, before the elders rush up here, tackle me and take me out of the building to administer some bare-knuckle counseling and some uh, contextual interpretation lessons, is that really what this verse is saying? Can we really do all things through Christ who gives us strength? I had a New Testament professor when I was at Liberty University who, in talking about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, liked to say that all means all, and that is all all means. He was, of course, trying to promote the very un-Calvinistic idea of 
unlimited atonement. But if he was correct about the word all, and all really does mean all without exception, then according to verse 13, we should be able to do all things. Can we? The answer is no. There are a lot of people in the world, though, a good many of whom are professing Christians, who, would, based on those verse, would tell you yes. Now, maybe they aren't talking about acts of superhuman ability. Maybe they're talking more about uh, the job inter- they're interviewing for or winning the gymnastics competition that they are entered in. You might have seen this uh, when it came out, but the very famous July 2009 issue of Sports Illustrated featured a picture of the then Florida Gators quarterback Tim Tebow, who, by the way, I, I believe is a professing Christian and I have great respect for. But in that picture, not only is he sporting a very determined look to his face, but under his eyes, that black uh, grease that they wear, uh, was written, Phil 413. Mr. Tebow was declaring to the world that his victories were a result of the strength that Christ had given him, and apparently the strength that God had withheld from his competitors. A casual look at websites such as Pinterest and Amazon.com. And yes, I looked at Pinterest. Sue me. (laughs) A lot of good things on Pinterest. Uh, But a look at those things will show you uh, an endless supply of craft ideas and merchandise, all centered around this verse, and all aimed at promoting the idea that with God's strength, we can achieve almost limitless goals. Coffee mugs, posters, casual wear, Formal attire, such as neckties, scarves, jewelry, an endless supply of sports equipment, all with the Philippians 4.13 verse of power printed on them. Notebooks, pencils, anything you can imagine. Apparently, and sadly, this is not a joke, there's even a market for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, printed on men and women's intimate apparel. Guys, nothing will guarantee you a ticket on the love boat like candlelight, soft music, and Philippians 4.13 underskivvies. I actually brought in one of these items to show you. Not the underwear, but rather a little red bracelet, very similar to some of the ones you may have seen for Cancer Awareness Months or the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. This one is called the I Can Strength Bracelet. Uh, and it features the word strength to conquer anything, and then two medallion-like holograms, um, which say, I can, and Philippians 4.13. The box uh, says on the back, this bracelet is a constant reminder of the power and strength we have through faith in Christ, and goes on to say that, I, that the I can logo symbolizes all that we can accomplish by tapping into God's strength. So there you have it, folks. With faith, we can tap into the unlimited power supply of God. That job you want, it can be yours through Christ who strengthens you. That Mega Millions jackpot, you can pick the one knee numbers because you can do all things. Again, I'm sort of speaking from absurdity here. When I was a teenager, my mom gave my dad a birthday present of skydiving lessons. And I remember going with him that day, and after a full day of on-the-ground training uh, on what to do, they took him up in the air to actually jump out of the plane. Now, I was on the ground, and I can remember watching him jump from that plane and feeling tremendous excitement for him and also lots of relief when his parachute opened. Uh, And even more relief again when he landed safely on the ground. Since then, occasionally, I have toyed with the idea of going skydiving. Now, imagine if I did that. 
And after jumping out of the plane and a few brief moments of awe and wonder as I surveyed God's creation spread out below me and rapidly approaching, uh, I pulled on my cord and my chute did not open. Now, it's my understanding there's always a backup chute, but imagine, too, that if I pulled on that one and it, too, did not open. I'm very certain that I could flap my arms like some sort of hyperspastic bird, all the while reciting Philippians 4.13, and that I would discover much too quickly that I really could not do all things, no matter how much strength I thought I had in Christ. In fact, the only thing in that situation with strength enough to survive the impact with the ground would be this silly red rubber bracelet. People like this verse because out of context, it is very motivational but for all the wrong reasons. Out of context, it gives us a sort of false sense of ability for achieving all the things we want without any regard to whether God actually wants those things for us. Out of context, it puts the emphasis on ourselves. The I can do all things becomes the focus, and God is relegated to some sort of portable power charger for our ambitions and desires. The verse becomes all about us, the job we want, the problem we are currently having. We hijack this promise with the expectation that by claiming it as our own, we can achieve our desires or solve our problems. Out of context, we take an awesome verse with truly great promise and turn it into a mere fortune cookie platitude. And I don't know about you, but there's not too many people that actually like fortune cookies. This brings us to point two, the verse understood. Having talked about all those somewhat absurd ways that the verse has been used, I think we need to look at how it is used and how it is to be applied. If this verse out of context promises personal accomplishment through a servile God, then we should consider what this verse says in context, which is, of course, always the approach we should take when trying to understand God's word and what God is telling us. So what is the context of Philippians 4.13? The simple answer for that, it's really not so simple, but it's uh, the entire book of Philippians, of course. Um, But it's also a tiny cell in Rome in which Paul is currently incarcerated while writing this letter. The Apostle Paul was writing the church of Philippi for several reasons, but here in chapter 4 we learn that one of those reasons is to thank them for their past and present provision for him during his work as an apostle and also during this current time of imprisonment. The conversation in the latter half of chapter 4 is primarily concerned with financial matters. To understand Philippians 4.13, we need to understand Philippians as a whole, as I said, but specifically verses 10 through 13, which say, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And I know how, uh, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To further add to our context of this verse, let's take a brief moment to do a little review of the Philippian church. This church located in Macedonia was the first church that Paul planted in Europe near the beginning of his second missionary journey. Now, Paul originally had not intended to go into Europe at all, but we are told in Acts chapter 16 that twice the Spirit forbid Paul from going anywhere else. Paul had a dream of a Macedonian man begging him to come to Macedonia to help him. And believing it was a message from God, uh, Paul traveled 
into Macedonia with Silas and Timothy into the prosperous city of Philippi. Though only in Philippi for a few days, Paul and Silas managed to bring a woman named Lydia, who sold purple merchandise, by the way, all you purple lovers, to faith in Jesus Christ. They cast out a divining spirit from a slave girl and thereby incurred the wrath of that slave girl's owner. Thus, they got a beating and were thrown into jail. While in jail, they survived an earthquake, which opened the doors to the prison and also unleashed the shackles that were on their arms and their ankles. They resisted the temptation to flee from prison, uh, but instead, by such faithfulness, by staying there and character, were able to witness to the jailer and his family and bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. So we see in this brief amount of time, uh, Paul is building up the Philippian church. Upon being asked to leave the city by city leaders who were disturbed by their disrupting presence, they again visited with Lydia. They met with and encouraged the brothers they had been able to briefly disciple, and then they went on their way. In a very short span of time, Paul was able to witness to and to disciple the Philippian believers, and from that time on, the newly planted Philippian church made it a point when they could to support Paul in his travels and ministry. Paul tells them in chapter 1 of this letter that he thanks God for them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Later on here in chapter 4, Paul gives more specific examples of their past provision for him when he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, with Paul imprisoned in a Roman cell, not sure if he was going to live or die, he writes to them that he rejoiced in the Lord that now you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul does not go into specifics about why the Philippian believers had not had the opportunity recently, though we do read in 2 Corinthians that the Macedonian churches, of which Philippi was the first, had at one point earlier been suffering from extreme poverty. Perhaps this is why they had been stopped in their support for a time. In any case, we read in verse 10 that now the Philippian church has revived their concern for Paul, and he is rejoicing greatly. The Philippian church has renewed their financial partnering with the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Now, I ask you, is Paul having a Jerry Maguire show-me-the-money kind of moment here? Is he saying something like, uh, these cheapskate Philippians are finally sending in their dues? Certainly not. Rather, Paul explains in verse 11 of chapter 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is being very careful here to clarify that his joy is not from the financial gain he might receive from the Philippian church or from the comforts he might be able to procure for himself uh, from such a gift in his current imprisonment. Paul's joy was not about the gain he received, but rather his joy was in that the Philippian church was once again in a position to renew their support. He spells this out specifically in verse 17 when he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. One thing I think we sometimes forget about Paul is that he was a man who experienced life from many different perspectives, and not all of them pleasant ones. He knew what it was like to face suffering and persecution for his faith, but he also knew what it was like to be the one causing the suffering and the persecution. Now, I don't know if anybody has seen this, but there's a television show out these days about the escapades of a less than saintly lawyer. It's called Just Call Frank. No, I'm just kidding, Frank. It's, uh, 
I had to do it, Frank. I'm sorry. It's, it's called Just Call Saul. I don't know if anybody's seen that. In the early days after Pentecost, though, if you were a Christian believer, just calling Saul was about the last thing you would think about doing. You remember this. Saul was a very zealous persecutor of the early church. The Pharisee Saul was a witness to the stoning death of Stephen, something which in the reading of Acts chapter 6 sounds kind of matter of fact, but which in reality was a very gruesome act that Paul, or actually Saul at that point, stood there and witnessed. Later on, the Apostle Paul would be the one on the receiving end of those stones for his own proclamation of the gospel. The Pharisee Saul was the one literally hunting believers down to arrest them and imprison them for their faith in Jesus. And then later, as the Apostle Paul, he was the one being hunted and imprisoned for his faith. He had seen both what it meant to pursue and to be pursued, to be at ease and to suffer, to be physically free and to be imprisoned. In verse 12 of chapter 4, Paul attests to the ups and downs of his life, and he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is telling us that no matter what the situation he faces, whether it is sitting in a room discipling the Philippian believers or sitting alone in a cold, dark prison cell, whether it is having the financial provision in his ministry from fellow believers or not having any monetary support at all, that he had learned the secret of contentment. And the answer to that secret is made clear to us in verse 13. He could do all things, meaning all the plentiful times as well as all the lean times, through Christ who strengthens me. The secret that Paul knew and which he was trying to communicate to the Philippians and to us was the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. This was in stark contrast to the Stoicism so common in that time period. The idea of the Stoic philosophers was that one was to find contentment in oneself. In fact, the word Paul uses in verse 11 when he talks about how in all things he has learned to be content was actually a word for contentment that was in common use by the Stoic philosophers to mean self-contentment. You can almost imagine the Philippian believers hearing that part of the letter for the first time and being momentarily taken aback that their very devout apostle Paul would say such a thing. And then a few lines later, he lets them off the hook by revealing his secret. Unlike the Stoics who tried to find contentment in themselves, Paul knew the only true contentment comes from the sufficiency found in Jesus. When taken out of context, Philippians 4.13 is used to try and harness the power of God in order to achieve the things that the world has to offer. When taken out of context, Philippians 4.13 is used to try and manipulate the world into not taking the things from us that we value most. The emphasis becomes about us and what we want or need. On the other hand, when taken in context, the verse reveals that it's not so much about us, but rather upon Christ and his strength being sufficient for our needs. Unlike my college professor's assertion that all means all, it is clear that when Paul says we can do all things, he does not mean that God is going to make all things that we want to happen occur or come to be, but rather that in all things God will be our strength. This verse would be better translated, I think, with the dependent clause first. Through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things. This verse is not the magic verse of red rubber bracelets or the motivational logo found on Christian sports jerseys. This verse is not about achieving the impossible, rather about relying upon Christ and his sufficiency. 
And this brings us to point three, the verse applied. It is because of this secret, now revealed in verse 13, that Christ is sufficient and nothing else. That we can understand how Paul can say earlier in Philippians chapter 3 that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Several years ago at one of our men's retreats, I remember getting into a conversation with our dear brother Rick Barons. I remember it now as one of the last in-depth conversations I actually got to have with Rick. And this was right at the time when ISIS had first started broadcasting the beheadings of Christians who had refused to renounce their faith and embrace Islam. Now, I must admit that contemplating that sort of death was very disturbing to me, as I imagine it is to everyone here. I remember talking to Rick and telling him that I was in awe of how those people, knowing the consequences for not giving in, remained true to our Lord and would not deny him, even though it meant a gruesome death. I expressed my hope that if I ever found myself in that situation, I would be brave enough to do the same thing. I think we would all like to think that, um, that we would be brave enough, loyal enough, and in love enough with our Savior to embrace death for him rather than deny him. Consider, though, that even Peter, the rock who held the very hands of Jesus, denied Jesus three times, practically right in front of his face, because he was scared of the consequences of saying he knew him. And so I ask you, when we consider our lives, what is it that we hold dear, or I'm sorry, what is it that we hold on to and consider dear? Is it our jobs, our families? As Paul said in chapter 3, he knew what it was like to suffer the loss of all things. And even though we know that nothing happens in this world that is not under God's control, it oftentimes seems that there is nothing in this world that we have that the world cannot also take away. Our homes, our jobs, the respect we get from others, the love we get from our families, our families themselves. There are those among us that have lost jobs or are worried that they will soon lose them. They don't know how the multitude of freight ends will ever meet. There are those among us, especially younger folks, that are struggling to find even a single path for their lives to call their own and to feel as if they are wandering in circles when all those around them seem to have found their way. There are those that ceaselessly pray for the relief of heavy burdens and have not found that relief and are questioning what the point of it all is, tired to despair of the worry they feel all the time. There are those who are suffering from debilitating health issues and are growing weary of the pain and stress and are not sure they want to continue that fight any longer. Sadly, there are some who are watching their loved ones go through terrible illnesses and feel helpless and frustrated without any power to help them. There are many who have lost loved ones and are trying to come to grips with the world suddenly without that person in their lives. See, the world can take the lives of those we hold dear. The world can take our children, our parents, our spouses. There is every possibility, especially in this world that seems to be growing more antagonistic towards those who name Christ as their Savior, that our own lives might be demanded of us. The secret that Paul found and the secret that the world on its own can never know is that the one thing that remains with us, even when all else has been stripped away, is the faith and surety we have in Christ Jesus and our salvation in him. Everything else is fleeting and can be taken away from us. 
the redeeming love of Jesus for us on the cross that can never be taken away. The secret that Paul discovered is that in all things, Christ is our strength, our true and lasting strength. Paul had learned that the ability to find contentment in any situation, whether in plenty or in want, was in the strength that comes from knowing Jesus. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 tells us these glorious words. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is our hope. That is our strength. When I was a child, I wanted nothing more than to have powers and abilities like Superman. I wanted my world to be a comic book of my own making, and I mistakenly thought that if I could sweet-talk God enough, he would give me the powers of my dreams. Like my childish dreams, there are many people today who invoke this incredibly wonderful verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, as a means to lend possibility to their desire to be able to achieve all they want or hope. Though they wouldn't put it in these words, they believe that this verse is telling them, like some genie in a bottle, God will grant them their wishes. They want this verse to allow them to harness the power that can move mountains rather than realizing it is all about the sufficiency of the one who had the strength to make the mountains in the first place. This verse is not about our being able to do all things, but rather about the strength of Christ on our behalf when we find ourselves able to do absolutely nothing. Christ is sufficient. It might not make for a good comic book, but it does make for a truly blessed life. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, you are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Help us to remember, Father, that despite what the world tells us, you are sufficient for all our needs and for all our concerns. Like the Apostle Paul, I pray that we would count all things as rubbish in comparison to the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus. When we start to concern ourselves with what we do or do not have, when we strive to accomplish things and succeed, or even if we fail, help us to remember that it is Christ's sufficiency that matters. Help us to remember that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Let us not trust in our own strength, but rather trust in yours. Let us be content with that. Be with us as we leave here today, Father, and help us to cling to each moment thereafter. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Since Tom's preached to us that our contentment is found by trusting the sufficiency of Christ, I think it would be wise to have our benediction from the end of this chapter, from Philippians 4, verse 19 and 20. Receive God's blessing, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, 
be glory forever and ever. Amen.